chapter 13. I've got this cough thing going on. If you would, I'd appreciate. My, my thought for the last like 48 hours is I have this coughing fit and my family can attest to this that it just sounds ridiculous. And I think, how am I supposed to, to get through a sermon if I'm doing that? So, I, I mean, I'd appreciate your, your prayers even as we enter into this time here that, that the Lord would withhold that, you know, that I would I'd be able to preach without doing that. And if I do, that's what's going on. I, I'm on antibiotics, so I'm not going to be getting you sick, I think. That's how that works. Uh, I'll stay away from the Lord's Supper today anyway. Uh, I'm just rambling here. Let's get back to the Word of God. Nehemiah chapter 13. And let me remind you what's going on here, right? After, after weeks of of reading scripture and confessing and repenting uh, and recommitting their lives to, to God and to the covenant. Last week, uh, we, we saw it all kind of come to this, this celebration at the dedication of the wall as they marched around and, and they, they played instruments and, and sang songs and were just so joyous at what the Lord had done and all this renewal uh, that has gone on. And then we see Nehemiah puts in, uh, systems and leaders into place, and, and the idea is that this, this holy city, Jerusalem, is going to flourish, and, and that's the future that the city has, and, and, and that's the happy ending, right? Except Nehemiah has one more chapter to it. Um, and, and before we read it, you, you need to know that after the, the systems and the leaders were, were set in place, that, that Nehemiah actually goes back to, to probably Susa, back to the Persian palace, uh, where he had responsibilities, where he'd always said he was going to return to. Uh, and now 12 years have passed, right? Uh, 12 years since the end of last week that we were looking at, since the end of chapter 12. And, and, and so get your, your head around that a little bit. You're thinking... 2010, what was going on in your life or, or someplace, and then you return back 2022 and, and see, you know, how's it going now? And, and that's what's happening here. So this is that big time jump, if you will, in a, in a story. Um, so let's, let's read, and, and we're going to see how the, the reformation and the renewal and, and, and all this, you know, hope for flourishing is going 12 years later. Uh, and we're going to read all of chapter three, 13 in one go. It's a, a pretty long little section, which means... Breaking out the glasses. There we go. Uh, follow along. Nehemiah 13, beginning in verse 1. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. And yet, our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now, before this, Eliashib, the, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the vessels, and the, the tithes of grain, wine, oil, which were given by the commandment to the Levites, uh, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priest. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I, I went to the king, and after some time I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God, and I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber, and then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and 
I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who, who did the work had fled each to his field. And so I confronted the officials and I said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and I set them in their stations. And then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain and wine and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed a, a, as treasurers over the storehouses uh, Shelemiah, the, the priest, the duke, the scribe, and uh, Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan, and the, the son of Zakur, son of Matayanah. For they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O oh my God concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day that when they sold food. And Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and Jerusalem itself. And then I confronted the nobles of Judah and I said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did, did not your fathers act in this way and did not our God bring all this disaster on us, on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem, before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be open until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates so that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. And then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of, of wares lodged outside Jerusalem, well, once or twice. But I, I warned them and, and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do, it, if you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. And then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O oh my God, and prepare me and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but the language of, of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them. And I beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Uh, among the many nations... Uh, among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all of Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoadiah, Jehoadah, uh, the son of Elisha, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering, and I appointed times for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, 
for good. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the book of Nehemiah. Thank you for how raw and honest your word is, how it shows the effects of sin in the hearts of, of, of men and women and in the creation itself. This, this morning, please inform us and transform us by your word. Your, your word which does not return to you void. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So, 12 ends well. 13's not what we're hoping for, right? And Nehemiah heartbreakingly learns that um, there's still people in Jerusalem and they are still sinning. Uh, and in some spectacular ways at that, he's, he's, he's walking into this right after 12 years, and it's, it's Biff Tanner's alternate 1985 that he seems to walk into. And, and you can just imagine, right, he's, he's got to be thinking, I, I, I set you all up for so much good. I put you on this good and godly path. All you had to do is follow it, and then you went and just drove off the cliff completely. What, what's going on here? I mean, if you've ever discipled somebody, you've probably had a taste of this at some point. Now, Let's have a look, right? This, this chapter kind of reads weird, weird there at the beginning. Structurally, uh, here's what's going on. If you want to, like, you almost have to arrange it in your head. Verses 1 through 3 chronologically actually occur uh, after verses 4 through 14. Uh, I'll explain why in a bit, but just, just know that, that we're starting later in the day. Uh, and so this is later in the day at this point, and the people are gathered, and they are read some section of the book of Moses. Uh, remember, right, the book of Moses, we're talking about the Pentateuch, the Torah, the, the first five books in, in your Bible. Uh, specifically, they are reading from Deuteronomy 23, 3 through 6. And you think, well, how do you know that? Well, I was there. I'm that old. No. Uh, we know that because of what they actually learn in that passage. Um, because of what they, they learn, you can trace it back and figure out, okay, they must have read this or relearned this, right? And that's that, that the Ammonites and the Moabites should not be entering into the assembly of God, the gathering of God's people. They, they are not to come into the temple, right? There's many different sections of the temple, and there are some sections they could come in, and they were not supposed to. Well, why? Because of particular sins that they committed against God's people. Uh, two of them. The, the Ammonites' sin was one of, of heartless uh, omission, okay? That they omit. They fail to do something. They, they refuse to do what they should have done, uh, namely, in this case, right, which was to provide food and water to Israel as they are escaping from Egypt, right? So they're, they're a case of James 4.17, right? Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him that is sin. They, they knew the right thing to do, they didn't do it, and that was sin. Uh, the Moabites, the other group, they actually commit the sin of commission, right? They, um, the, the, a sin that is, is actively committed, they do something that they should not do. In this case, what they did was they go and they hire this prophet, uh, named Balaam, uh, to, to, to curse Israel. And you, you think, oh, okay, this is God's prophet, though, right? He's a real prophet. God actually speaks to him, gives him messages uh, and, and, and by God, but he's also this, this wicked man who, who later actually turns against Israel and, and leads Israel astray in a lot of ways. You can go read about it in Numbers 22 if you want to know more about that. The, the point here, though, is that that God forbid the Amorites and the Moabites from coming into this, this parts of the temple, and yet they are there. They are there. And, and upon, you know, relearning the scripture, the, the people in verse say, 3 say they, they separate from Israel all those of, of foreign uh, descent. Right? Does that sound a little racist? Uh, maybe a bit? Uh, remember, this is more about allegiance to God, which, which ran deeper across nationality at the time. 
That those of other nations could be included in Israel, right? If they, were, if they put their absolute faith in Yahweh, you remember Ruth, uh, right? Ruth marries Boaz, Jewish man, right? The, the Israelite. And, and uh, Ruth, who is actually an ancestor of King David, an ancestor of, of Jesus our Lord. And do you remember what her nationality? She was Ruth the Moabite. But she became an Israelite by committing her life, her allegiance, 100% everything to, to the Lord. If you remember that famous oath, right? Uh, Ruth, Ruth 1.16, uh, your people shall be my people, your God, my God. And, and, and so we see that that, that that can happen. But the bottom line here that we're seeing is, and, and what we can apply here, is, is they submit to God's word. Right? And you think, well, they already did 12 years ago. Well, they're submitting to God's word again. Right? There's a lot in that, but they're coming back to it, and they are committed to it, and they stop tolerating what they know to be wrong in the eyes of God once it is presented to them in the scriptures here. Now let's look at verses 4 through 14. Here's the situation. There is a, a priest named uh, Eliashib, and, and he's not the high priest by the same name later on in the same passage, but he is in charge of various rooms in the temple. Um, the high priest was not in charge of this stuff. That's how we know they're different people. Uh, anyway, however, in, instead of cultivating his relationship with, with God, he's been cultivating his relationship uh, with some incredibly evil men, ungodly men in this area. And, and he, he, at this point, right, at some point, eventually uses his power for these ungodly purposes. Uh, Eliashib is, is, now, is also somehow probably related through marriage uh, to this guy named Tobiah. Uh, and, and for some reason, he's decided, you know, Tobiah, come on into the temple and make this your house. You, you can live here. We have this big room right in the middle of Jerusalem. It's great. You can have it. <clears throat> right? And this is the place, though, where, where all the grain offerings, where a lot of the objects or items that were used in the worship of God were, were stored. This was supposed to be used for other things. And now Nehemiah here, right, makes very clear in verse 6. six. I love this, right? All happened while I was gone. I just want you to know, I, I wasn't here. He wants to make sure this is written in historical things. You know that. Anytime you show up and something's like, things are blown, I wasn't here. There's always someone wanting to step out of responsibility in that moment. He's absolutely right. He's not responsible. He's not there, but he wants to make sure we know that. Now, Nehemiah makes very clear in verse 7 that, that what the priest has done here, it's not just weird, although it is weird. It's not just, you know, unwise, although it is unwise, but it is actually evil what he's done. And, and, and so here is, is how it connects to, to the renewed commitment to separates from Moabites and Ammonites in verse, verses 1 through 3. Why we go forward and then come back in this day. Verse 1 through 3 is forward, right? Or, yeah, forward. Now, Tobiah, the guy who has set up this house in the temple of God, do you recognize his name after we've made our way through Nehemiah? Right? We've heard this before. We saw this. You remember there's initially two guys that are big enemies of Nehemiah and the rebuilding the wall project, and they try to stop it. If you've got your Bible in front of you, just, just turn on back. Nehemiah 2.10. Right? The first inter enemy was Sanballat the Horonite, which you know shows up later in this chapter. And, and the second one is Tobiah. And if you've got it in front of you, you see where he's from. Tobiah the Ammonite. 
You remember him? He's the one that, that later in chapter 4, he mocks the wall, where he's like, you know, if a fox goes on that wall, it's so pathetic, your wall's going to fall down, and, you know, his buddies probably laughed with them, burn or whatever. Now, the Ammonites are, are not even permitted to enter into, the, you know, God's temple, any aspect of it, and yet here is a particularly despicable Ammonite tried to prevent the building of the city, or the, or the walls. He's not just entering the temple, he's actually living in the temple. This is his house. You, you see the structure of the passage now? You, you see, see why verse 4 begins now? Before this, Nehemiah discovers that Tobiah the Ammonite is living in the temple. And after evicting Tobiah later that day, that's when he says, you know what? Let's read the word of God again. Let's look at this again. Because you're letting this evil happen. And, and let me show you from scripture what, why this is evil, why it shouldn't be happening. And they recommit to God's word. Regarding <coughs> Tobiah's eviction, Nehemiah says here in verse 8, I was very angry. His actions show that anger, right? He, he goes Bobby Knight on Tobiah's furniture, just tossing it out of the temple. <coughs> and his, his reaction might, might surprise us, right? <coughs> just the, the violence of it. it. It seems so wrong to us probably in the era we live in. He, his <coughs> anger is amplified e even more in the next section, which we're going to consider here in a moment. Uh, here, though, I want you to see, though, it's, it's impossible to not, to not notice a, a parallel here. Let me take a sip of this while you try to think, what's a parallel that we're going to see in the life of Christ here? That's good. Right? The parallel is that with the Lord Jesus. You remember some 400 years later, he enters into the same temple and he finds these, these money changers in there. Guys that are just greedy, trying to make money off of the people coming to worship in God's house. In Matthew 21 and John 2, we learn that, that Jesus comes in and he flips over their tables, right? And he uses a, a whip to just swiftly drive all the money changers out of his father's temple in that moment. <coughs> Jesus was driven by, by anger in that moment. But it was a righteous anger, anger that was concerned with the honor and, and the glory of God. I believe in this moment, Nehemiah's anger, though uncomfortable to us, is also righteous anger. It's a rare thing to see righteous anger, but I think that's what we're seeing here in Nehemiah. Ne Nehemiah restores the, the temple space to what God declared it should be used for, for the vessels of, uh, in worship, used in worship and for the grain offerings from the people. And that, that brings us to verse 10, if you're following along there, right? Since the Levites and the singers were no longer supported by the contributions of God's people, they had to provide for their family some way. And so they've gone back to their family farms, to the fields, uh, in order to, to be able to provide for them. And, and do you see what Nehemiah says to the officials in verse 11? Why is the house of God forsaken? And that's supposed to draw your mind back to something earlier. Back to chapter 10, Nehemiah 1039, uh, where, where the people make this oath. And you remember the oath? They say, we will not neglect the house of our God. And yet here they are doing just that. A, a few verses before uh, that one in verse 10, right? They, they saw me said, we obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. We're, we're going to fill this place up. We're going to do the thing we're supposed to. And 12 years later, it's empty. And there's a, an Ammonite living in there. Well, slowly over time, they, they drift away from that oath, maybe bringing less and less until finally they fully neglect 
the house of their God. And again, Nehemiah has the people renew their oath. And again, bring what God, they bring what God has, has called them to do all along. There's this renewal back into what they're supposed to do. And this section ends with Nehemiah asking God to remember all that he's done for, for the Lord's honor. Now, let's consider verses 15 through 22. What, what else has gone wrong in Nehemiah's absence? Well, the Sabbath is, is being defiled, as he puts it. Now, outside the city, the, the Jewish people he sees are, right, this is outside the walls and the farms as he's traveling probably, they're, they're working on the Sabbath. They're, they're making wine and they're loading and transferring grain and figs and, and treating this day like every other day of business. Instead of putting God first, they're, they're putting their business first. As, as, as Raymond Brown put it, he says, the acquisition of money had become a greater priority than obedience to God. You think you can relate to that? Maybe not in the same way, but the acquisition of money becomes a, a bigger priority than obedience to God. Ne Nehemiah also observes that Tyrians, these foreigners who, who live in Jerusalem, they, they sell fish. Tyre is a town on the, on the coast. Um, they're kind of like modern-day American Exxon employees that are living in some place like Qatar, uh, right? The, these Tyranians have disregarded the Sabbath completely, even though that was the local culture when they would have arrived originally. And, and, and you know, they can because the Jewish people there will buy from them. There, there's money to be made because they're not honoring the Sabbath in the way they were called to either. And, and Nehemiah is outraged, and he says to the Jewish nobles, what is this evil thing you are doing? He then gives them a, a history lesson through, through the prophet Jeremiah. God said, uh, this is Jeremiah 17, 27. He says, if you do not listen to me to keep the Sabbath day holy, then I will kindle a fire in its gates and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem. This is way back when. And all, all, the, all of them would have known, right? That, that their fathers, their forefathers ignored that warning and it came absolutely true when, when Nebuchadnezzar burned down the gates and destroys the city. It's exactly what God said would happen does happen. Nehemiah's point is, you're doing it again. We've just gotten back together. The Lord has been gracious to us, restoring the city, and you're doing it again, right? You're as, as Proverbs 26.11 says, you're, you're like a dog that returns to his vomit is, is a fool who repeats his folly. And, and so Nehemiah verbally warns them, and, and then he has this plan, right? Because you can't just berate people. You've got to have a plan. How do we get back on task? And, and from, you know, how do we move from profaning the Sabbath to honoring the Sabbath once again? And the order is, right, these gates are going to be shut at, at dark uh, and not open again until after the Sabbath. That makes it hard to go in and out. There would have been some other little ways to go in and out. He appoints men to stop deliveries from being made on the Sabbath, right? How do you think it's going to go with that Amazon delivery guy today when you're like, no, you cannot deliver that here. You, you come back tomorrow, right? I mean, it's going to be a weird afternoon when we get to that. Anyway, some of the merchants camped outside the gates, but, but, but they stopped that after Nehemiah says that phrase. Some of you probably love this phrase, right? If you do it again, I will lay hands on you. Because he doesn't mean it in the way the Apostle Paul means that phrase, right? Let's pray over you. It's, it's more like the old school Italian mob sense of that phrase. It's going to go very poorly for you. He also calls the Levites to purify themselves and to guard the gates. And, 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 and you kind of got to realize, like, some of these Levites are thinking, I don't want to be in that. I have to be the guy now that, that won't let people come in with stuff and everyone's going to hate me and scorn me. Uh, but that's what he's asking them to do and that's what they step up and they actually do. Uh, sadly, it's a tale as old as time. 
God's people in every age seem to drift into to viewing the Lord's Day as, as an undesirable bit of legalism, right? The Lord, this is a gift for you, and we're like, I don't, I don't want that gift. That sounds horrible. Instead of a, a gracious gift and a blessing, a delight from the Lord, today we live in an overwhelmingly, you know, we, we just view it wrong. And, and today, like, today we do live in an overwhelmingly secular nation. There's, there's no way our government will enforce practicing the Sabbath on unbelieving neighbors or, or Christians, right? We, we, we can, and yet we can believe and we can act on the words of the Lord Jesus when in Mark 2.27 he says, The Sabbath was made for men. It was made for you. It's a good gift to us. I mean, Christian, you, you can trust God and, and rest on this day. And I know I, we've hit that a lot in Nehemiah, and I'm not going to keep going into that. But, but there's something to this rest. The reason we come out of this, these, week, you know, these Sundays, the Lord's Day, so uh, unrested is because we have not understood what it means to rest in the Lord. I can you encourage you to, to look into that. What does that really look like? Uh, and, and so then the last section deals with the perennial problem of intermarriage among the Israelites. Uh, Twelve years earlier, again, recorded in Nehemiah 1030, uh, they promised to not marry those of other cultures, those of other religions, foreigners, right? But, but they have not kept that promise. And now Nehemiah shows up and he sees the results all over the place. Their, their, their children don't speak the Jewish language. They don't speak Hebrew. Um, meaning they can't even understand the word of God when it's going to be read to them later in life or at that point in their life. And, and again, God's not against his people marrying other ethnicities, but rather... God forbids his people in every era from marrying not my people, people. It's about whether they are God's people. He's against his children, right, cozying up to false gods and, and to idols. And Nehemiah here is furious, 23, right? He says, I confronted them. I'm like, all right, that seems reasonable. I cursed them, a little weirder. I beat some of them and I pulled out their hair. Right? Ezra, when he had similar problems, he pulled out his own hair. And Nehemiah's like, it's your hair this time. It, it's, does that bother you when you read that? That doesn't sit well in our current culture, does it? Like, do, do you look that, you're like, that is toxic leadership. Let's cancel this man. But remember, it's a different culture that you don't understand. Don't, don't walk into this and think you do. Remember also, Nehemiah, he's, he's not the priest. He's not also just some guy, right? He's not a, a lay person in that sense. He, he is actually the governor here. There, there's some aspect uh, of him having the right to bear the sword in a, in a way that we can't even understand under our, our current understanding of government here. I, I'm not saying it, it's all necessarily great, but, but understand you probably don't know enough to, to pass as much judgment on him here as you want to. The, the apostle Paul instructs us in Ephesians 4.26, be angry and do not sin. There's a way to be angry and not sin. Does Nehemiah sin here? I, I don't believe so, right? I'm not ready to fight you on this, but that'd be funny, right? Um, I, I, but I don't believe so. I really don't. What, what I don't want to happen here, though, is, is that you miss what's going on here. And I, I wonder if we don't struggle with this more because... Uh, at his response here, simply because we are so accustomed at just excusing sinful behavior, <coughs> sinful behavior all around us, right? Treating it as a, it's no big deal. Like, why would you act that bad? All they did was sin. Maybe we're bothered by his response because we don't, we don't value the holiness of God in the way that Nehemiah valued the holiness of God here. Because, I mean, be honest, you, you would probably... 
wouldn't be so quick to condemn Nehemiah's action here if the man he was beating was a convicted child molester. He just wouldn't. Right? So there you go. There's your Sunday lunch discussion. Enjoy. Anyway, Nehemiah doesn't, doesn't require that they end their marriages, but he does make them take an oath to no longer marry into foreign, language, foreign cultures. He's also, also illustrated how important the oath is by reminding them. Remember King Solomon? He did the same thing. And, he, and, and Solomon thought, he's going to be strong. He'll be fine. I can marry foreign wives. And no, I'll be, I'll be strong, right? And how'd that turn out? Well, Solomon built altars to Chemosh and Moloch, the false gods of the Moabites and the Ammonites. Same people, right? If, if he can't do it, well, why do you think you can and this section ends with a specific example of, of one of these ungodly marriages involving the high priest who should certainly know better. Um, he allowed his descendant to wed a descendant of a, uh, the other significant enemy at the beginning of Nehemiah, right? Sanballat the Horonite. And Nehemiah chases him off. And, and, and then for good measure, he prays, asking God, right, to bring justice on those who have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant here. It's a, a prayer bringing this, this curse down on him. And so... Right, so how did the leaders and the people go from this wholehearted commitment to God in chapter 12, right, where he's their delight and, and we're going to do the right thing and we can't wait to do this and we're so excited, uh, and, and to 12 years later, so much evil just spread throughout the entire city of Jerusalem. And it's the same way that, that you and I might, right? It's the old frog in the pot situation. It, it happens little by, by little, by becoming careless in our worship and our devotion to God. You know, you, you grow, you, you get a little busy, things are going on, you're tired more. Um, you read and you study God's word less and less until you just stop considering whether God's word has anything to say to you in your life. You, you gather for worship less and less, right? What, what is it doing for me? It's not as entertaining as I might want it to be. Prayer becomes rote until it's abandoned altogether. Slowly you embrace the secularized cultural culture around us, right, of materialism that, that, that's everywhere, right? Making money and buying stuff and, and being entertained becomes our real priority in life. You, you begin to live for yourself rather than the Lord. And, and before long, God no longer even seems real to you. Now you're going just through the motions. I mean, you ever, you ever feel that? You ever experience that? I mean, are, I mean, are you now, right? Are, are you experiencing a, a chapter 12 devoted and delighted in God time or a, a chapter 13 disobedient and distant from God in your life? I mean, if chapter 13 teaches us anything, it's, it's that reformation and, and renewal are never complete. Right? You've got the old phrase, what is a Semter Reformation or Reformanda? There's a lot wrapped up in why it's grammatically not quite right. But, but the idea is always reforming. We need that. We, we must always be, be holding up our, our, our lives, right, to, to the Word of God. What, is, what does this say compared to the way that I'm actually living? What, what do I need from God in that sense? We must be always confessing, always repenting, always returning, always recommitting to the Lord who, who always welcomes you back with open arms. The mercy and the grace of the Lord in that. Now the final line of the chapter, have a look at it there, is, is Nehemiah's prayer. And he says, remember me, 
oh my God, for good. Right? He's, he pleaded with the Lord in a similar way in, in verse 14, 22, and earlier in the book too. Uh, why does Nehemiah do this? What is he doing here? What's happening here, it's because he wants the Lord to see his intentions. That he has been faithful and loyal to God and done what he can for the glory of God despite what the current fruit of all of his efforts actually looks like here. He certainly wants God's approval. Who doesn't? If you've ever discipled someone or raised children, you, you know, right, that, that, that you can teach them and you, you can pray for them and you, you want what's best for them, but, but only God can transform the heart. And, and so he's asking God, remember my, my faithfulness. Not that Tobiah is living in the temple right now or was a, earlier that day. I mean, here at the, at the end of this strange and wonderful book, we, we come to the abrupt truth that even a leader as amazing as Nehemiah was incapable of transforming Israel. And it all looked like he was going to. Everything was set up wonderfully. But you know, fixing the walls did not fix their broken hearts, their sinful hearts. They're all still sinners, but one far greater than Nehemiah is, is what is needed. And that's certainly the other thing we learn here in chapter 13 of Nehemiah. Um, because of the way our, our, our Bibles are actually laid out, right? We've got the, the Psalms and all the, the prophets that come after this. It's easy to forget that uh, Nehemiah is actually the, the last bit of biblical historic, like record of history recorded in, in Scripture uh, until Jesus and the Incarnation and the Gospels. Right? If you want to go in order, you just go from chapter 13 to chapter 1 of Matthew. Um, I don't know, do you, do you realize that when we were reading this, that that's where we are in history? In, in, in this somewhat disheartening ending, God is actually beautifully setting up what comes next. The, the birth of, of Jesus. The birth of the leader of Israel and all of God's people really need. The, the true Israelite. Jesus, the Messiah that we need, the, the Savior that you and I need, the, the Savior that all sinners need. Now, there's not a big application in here at the end. This brings us to the end of Nehemiah. I, I do want you to, to think about that. We, we saw some of the greatest leadership we've ever seen. It's, this book is used, actually, to teach leadership even today. Here, what are we, 2,500 years later? And yet, we, we know that what we really need is, is a Savior. What we really need is Christ. And I, I mean, I, I love to see God's providence in this. We, we stop here. Uh, next week, Zach will be preaching, but it's also the beginning of, uh, of Advent. We're going to be looking at the, the coming of Christ. We actually skip right over into the Gospels as we look at Christ's, Christ's coming in the next few weeks. So we're going to leave it right there. I, I hope you've enjoyed Nehemiah. I'll be honest, I enjoyed some of it. Some of it is like, I don't know what to do with that. A lot of list of names. But it's, uh, it's been a joy of the Lord. It's, it's the Lord's word and it's been profitable for us. Uh, let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for all that we have learned as we've made our way through the book of Nehemiah. We know that programs and, and projects can be wonderful blessings and yet uh, they have not the power to redeem us from our sin. Thank you for, for raising up Nehemiah with with all his rough edges. 
Thank you for reestablishing Jerusalem, the city where, where Jesus goes and is crucified outside of. Thank you. Thank you for the God-honoring call to holiness and, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit for that call. But, but most of all, thank you for accomplishing salvation on our behalf. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for calling so many of us to faith. We, we ask you to, to call more to faith, as you will. Um, Lord, we thank you for all that you are and all that you've done for us. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.